We continue our sermon series for Lent on both geographic places, but perhaps more importantly, theological places along our Lenten journey. Perhaps no more significant theologically today than this from the first part of the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus as making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar and near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus Uh, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will well up and become a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say there's a place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming And is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he the one who is speaking to you, the word of the Lord. With all due respect to this text from John, like any good first century Jew, Jesus decidedly did not have to go through Samaria. In Jesus' day, there were three regions stacked on top of each other. There was Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south, The easiest way to get to Galilee from Judea was to go due north right through Samaria. But devout and pious Jews would always take a detour, go around Samaria, so they did not have to go through it, did not have to be sullied 
by being with the Samaritans. It was a safe way without challenge, though out of their way, well worth it to their religious sensibility. Jews and Samaritans started from a similar place, but they disliked each other with a passion. Jews thought Samaritans had corrupted their belief, and so they went to great lengths to stay away from them. But according to the text, when Jesus had to go to Samaria, look how he went. He didn't invade. He didn't force himself on the Samaritans. He did not challenge their belief or customs. Jesus did not go to colonize them. All he did was sit down in the town square near the well at noon, a foreign place at a strange time where he encountered this woman who came to draw water. So many things are wrong with this. Women did not come to a well at high noon. They did early in the morning or late in the afternoon. Men didn't come to the well at all. They sent women or slaves to do that work. Women and men did not speak to each other in public. And Samaritan and Jews did not speak to each other, period. And this unnamed woman, let's be clear, is not the first century version of Elizabeth Taylor with a string of marriages to multiple men, living it up in some swirl of indulgence. Maybe closer to the truth is the poem by Emily Dickinson that begins, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, don't tell. They'll banish us, you know. In first century Middle Eastern culture, a woman did not have a choice when it came to husbands. This woman had either been widowed or divorced and thus was passed from man to man to man to man, probably in the midst of some forced, desperate, downward mobility. Jesus had to go to Samaria, to just this place, in just this way, because this is Jesus. Jesus always went to the last person, the least person, the wrong person. I think when you and I, when we face a, a new awkward situation or, or a challenge to what we know, we tend to double down on what has worked for us in the past. We return to what we know, what has succeeded, what is familiar. We trust what has worked. We'll welcome new ideas and new people as long as they fit the patterns and norms we've come to expect. August 12, 1805 is a very significant day in American history. The Lewis and Clark expedition was well underway, heading west, trying to find a water passage they believed would take them all the way to the Pacific Ocean. August 12, 1805 was the fateful day when Lewis and Clark realized that everything they thought they knew about their world was wrong. It was on that day they realized <clears throat> there really was no waterway to the Pacific, they realized that the Rocky Mountains that they were in the midst of was nothing like the Appalachians from which they had come. The expedition had hauled all these canoes all the way from St. Louis in a belief that those canoes would be the essential item to literally carry them to their future. But on this day, as they stared at the vast expanse of the Rockies, 
and then looked at these canoes, they realized that they were in a strange new world. Lewis and Clark had believed that their way forward would largely resemble their past. What do you do when the world of the familiar, the world of the safe, the world of the known is not your world of tomorrow? Jesus on that day at high noon sitting by that well in dreaded Samaria, was showing those who sought to follow him that his ministry would not be safe or familiar or comfortable. That's what the text really means when it said Jesus had to go through Samaria. Lewis and Clark's canoes are a symbol of what we think we have to use to go forward. It can be uh, clinging to the familiar in our faith. It can be prizing safety and security over whatever God is disrupting in us. And let me tell you, God is always disrupting something in us. Canoes stand for our need to control our future by by, uh, using only our past. This all began at the well because Jesus was thirsty. Notice, it's not the woman who had the initial need. Uh, This woman is not the one in the ditch waiting for the good Samaritan. She's not the prodigal returning in need of a parent's embrace. She's not the one crying out to Jesus for mercy. Her engagement with Jesus' need opened the door. In Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, Seely and Suge have a long talk about God. Seely has been abused in life. She's trying to be what she was taught would be, look like a good Christian for a long time, but now she's given up. She's decided God is dead. She describes her gifts from God as a lynch daddy, a crazy mama, a low-down dog of a steppaw, and a sister I probably won't ever see again. Suge tries to help Seely believe in God again, which is shocking. Uh, Seely finds it astonishing because Suge had never been a churchgoer and, and frankly had been considered by Seely to be a pretty big sinner. Suge asks Seely uh, to describe the God that she doesn't believe in. He big, old, tall, gray-bearded, and white. Suge replies, if you wait for God in the white folks' church, That's the one who's bound to show up. When I found out that God was white and a man, I lost interest. Shug is the Samaritan woman. Prejudiced people keep telling her that God doesn't care for her, that she doesn't count, that she can't matter to God, that she can't even worship right. But like the Samaritan woman, Shug hears a new voice, God love everything you love and a mess of stuff you don't. Praise God by liking what you like. People think pleasing God is all God care about, but any fool living in the world can see God always trying to please us back. Once we feel loved by God, let's do our best we can to please God. That moment, that turning, that 
realization that any fool living in the world can see God always trying to please us back happened in the person of Jesus. There at the well, thirsty, with that woman on his detour into Samaria, breaking through all caution and tradition and convention and norms and theologies and categories to tell this woman about the God of spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit, the spirit that blew over the waters of creation is mostly described in the New Testament as wind. It's like Jesus saying the day is coming when those who worship will worship in the wind and in truth. It implies that the Spirit of God is in motion, that God is not static, but always in movement. God is always the God of detours and extra mile journeys because God is uncontrollable like the wind. A world set in motion by the Spirit of God has no way to keep up with all the caution and tradition and norms and categories or fenced off people and places that populate our living. And truth? John's Gospel has a very particular view of truth. Truth for us tends to be an idea, a proposition, some statement like that idea is true. But in John's gospel, Jesus makes statements like, I am the truth. The truth about God has become a person. God is no longer an abstraction. God has a face and a name, Jesus the Christ. After Jesus told the woman that there will be a day when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, Jesus says, I am. That is, if she really wants to encounter the truth, she only has to open her eyes and see the truth in conversation with her. Truth is sitting right next to her. Jesus was thirsty. The woman yearned for living water, something that she could not completely name. And in that encounter, everything else was spirit and truth. And all this happened because Jesus didn't stay where he was supposed to be, but instead took this detour into unfamiliar territory. Her name uh, was Kathleen. Growing up, she dreamed of going to exotic places to be a missionary. She wanted to proclaim the gospel and share the good news all over the planet. It didn't work out that way. She got married and had children, and because they needed extra money, she went to nursing school. She ended up as a public health nurse in Asbury Park, New Jersey. That was not Sri Lanka. That was not China. She was living in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Some of you may know, Asbury Park in the 30s and 40s was a posh resort destination. It had grand hotels. It had a boardwalk to rival Atlantic City at the time. But by the time Kathleen was there as a public health nurse, Asbury Park looked like bombed out Berlin. The shops had closed, the boardwalk had deteriorated. Most of the hotels had either closed or were flop houses. 
There was one of the hotels that had in it scores of aged people. Most of them were sick. All of them were poor. The management of the hotel would not let public health nurses in because they didn't want them to observe the squalid conditions. So they were kept out, and the corrupt Asbury Park government went along with that. But every time Kathleen went by that hotel, she looked up and she saw Jesus in the window saying, I am thirsty. So she took off her nurse's uniform, put on everyday clothes, and took a detour into that hotel incognito and was hired on as a chambermaid. Every day, that woman would go from room to room to room, scrubbing toilets, changing linens, uh, checking medications, taking blood pressure, and speaking a word of encouragement. None of the rest of us would have seen this. We would have only seen despair. She saw Jesus saying, would you give me something to drink? And through dipping her clay jar every day into that well and holding it out to his lips, that world was filled with streams of mercy and living water. A, a few years ago, NPR reported a story about Julio Diaz, who is a, a social worker in New York City. Every day, on his way home from work, Diaz followed the same routine ending his hour-long commute on the subway to the Bronx one stop early so he could eat dinner at his favorite diner. But one night, as Diaz stepped off the number six train and onto the nearly empty platform, his evening took an unexpected turn. He was walking toward the stairs when a teenage boy approached and pulled a knife and demanded his money. So Diaz gave the boy his wallet. The assailant began to walk away. Diaz said, hey, wait a minute, you forgot something. If you're going to be out here all night robbing people, you're going to get cold. You probably better take my coat as well to keep you warm. Uh, the young man looked at the victim like, you know, what are you doing? What is this? And Diaz replied, well, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, I'm guessing you really need the money. I was just going for dinner. I'd be happy to have you join me if you don't have anything else. Remarkably, the boy agreed, and they both went off to the diner for dinner. Shortly after they sat down, the manager came by to say hello. The dishwasher came by to say hello. All the waitresses, not just the ones serving their table, came by and said hello. Diaz remembered the kid was like, you know everybody here. Do you own the place? No, I just eat here a lot. The boy responded, but you're nice to everybody. You are nice to the dishwasher. Well, haven't you been taught that you should be nice to everybody, he asked the boy. Yeah, but I didn't think people actually behaved that way, the boy said. The social worker saw an opening. He asked the boy what he wanted out of life. Diaz says he had this sad face. He either couldn't answer or wouldn't answer. When the bill arrived, Diaz told the teen, well, you're going to have to pay for this because you have my wallet. But if you're willing to give my wallet back, I'm happy to treat you to dinner. And without question, the boy handed over the wallet. Diaz gave him $20, figuring he needed it, and he asked for one more thing. Before they left, he asked the boy for the knife, and the boy gave it to him. 
If we would read a few more verses in John 4, we get to verse 42. As the gospel is coming off this story of Jesus' detour into Samaria, we get verse 42, which is the only time in John's gospel where the word Savior is used. For we have heard for ourselves that we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is said when this Jesus, sitting by a well on his detour into hostile territory because he had to go through Samaria, talked to that woman. Scandal. Invitation. Unlikely detours, scary, unfamiliar terrain. What got us to today will not get us to tomorrow. Thirst, such deep thirst. Blowing spirit, lived truth, strange lands, uncontrollable places. Overturning generosity, boundary-breaking love, God in constant motion, streams of mercy, living water, hope, life. Savior. 